The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Like, all of a sudden on the saxophone. I mean, we have, like, an incredible team... And if you want to know uh, how to serve in this church without playing a musical instrument, there's room for you, by the way. Uh, children can go to Children's Church. Um, and so good to see everybody. I, I told the folks at St. James uh, that I was going to say this, so I better say it. Or I'll have to admit something I don't want to admit that I forgot. Um, but that chorus that's up there on the screen, um, you know, that is a wonderful prayer for the Christian life. That's a wonderful prayer for the Christian life. I would encourage you to pray it um, this week. And each verse of that hymn speaks to some aspect of discipleship that may be, you know, in your purview of responsibility, or all of them may be. But, um, you know, these hymns, and thank you, whoever, Allison, it was that selected the hymns this week. And, uh, and who? who? Ivy, thank you. And um, Gary? Be ready to read, because that, uh, that verse on uh, Days in Elijah, I started to cry, and I'm a little concerned, so uh, be ready to read. Pray that I get through this in a good way, in the best way possible. Mark chapter number one. Have I forgotten something, because I had a lot going on there, and I may have left something out. No? Good. Mark one. Last sermon from Mark. Um, it's verse 14. John, John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, Father, I pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Well, we will conclude our deliberations from Mark this morning, and I want to take us back to January when we began, um, and there were two illustrations that I used that I hoped would help us better understand how to think about Mark's gospel. The first would be a dark room, a window, and a curtain, and if light is going to shine into that dark room, you're going to have to pull the curtain back, and I suggested that the gospel of Mark works like the string that you pull on to, to raise or to open the curtain. And as the curtain is raised, the light begins to pour in and you begin to see the kingdom of God at work. And that's very important because uh, we live in, in very challenging times, spiritually dark times increasingly so in our uh, community around us and in our nation and, of course, in the world. Uh, but uh, the people that Mark was writing to lived in equally dark times, very spiritually challenging times, and they needed light to shine in, just as we do. Because if we're going to be a people of hope, if we're going to build a culture of hope in our congregation, we need to have light shining when it's dark spiritually dark we need spiritual light to shine 
The second illustration that I used that kind of framed my thinking and I hoped would help us uh, was that of language. That there is a difference between being able to say a few words and then actually thinking and behaving like someone who is a native of that country. My son Zach and his wife Katie are here and the kids and they can tell you something about being immersed into a second culture, learning a language, but having to actually learn how to think and live like the people whose language you're speaking. That's an entirely different thing. Uh, and that is true of us as well. And what's required is immersion. Immersion is what is required. It is the necessary step that l serious language learners have to take that moves them past kind of a surface understanding and they get to the actual meaning of the words, they get to the heart of the customs and the culture that they are in. And immersion is actually the most effective way to learn a language because when you are in the context with people in loving relationships with them, you begin to learn what those words mean and how those words impact people. We needed to remember, and this is what I hope to bring out in these 10 months from Mark's gospel is that Jesus was not content to teach his people a few words and phrases. He intended for his people to live in close personal relationships so that their language being shaped by faith, hope, and love make them then into a people who not only speak a few Christian words but actually are the kind of new creations that that uh, Tyler read about from 2 Corinthians. And um, that, that first part uh, there in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul makes the appeal, make room in your hearts for us. You see, if we're going to live as new creation people, it will mean that room has to be made in our hearts, one for another. And we see this all throughout Mark's gospel that he is trying to immerse his disciples into relationships of love so that their hearts are made open one to another and so that they learn to live as a community. And we know, of course, by the, where we were last week, right? You get to the end of Mark's gospel, and we are Mark 16, 1 through 8 Christians, by the way. We don't do that add-on text, but you end at verse number 8, and you see, well, it doesn't look like Jesus accomplished his goal. None of the disciples are there. The women go into the tomb and they hear what the angel has to say and then they leave. They're, they're afraid. They're, they're trembling. They don't even say anything. It doesn't look like Jesus got very far right in immersing his people into the language of faith, hope, and love so that they lived as a, as a new creation. And that's challenging, right? And, you know, I, I look at my own life and I think, wow, I, I really haven't gotten very far. I haven't gotten very far. I think I've gotten far, but I haven't gotten very far, right? But this is why we, we need Jesus. And if we keep these two illustrations together, then as we bring this to a conclusion, we're going to apply those two illustrations to three really big picture truths that kind of sit on top of Mark's gospel. The one is that time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel the second then is the importance of galilee it's what we talked a little bit about last week why is galilee important it's the place for rescued 
sinners to come and find help, find forgiveness. It's the place of restoration that comes through a crucified Christ. And then the third, the third big picture truth is in chapter 2, and that is the call of Christ to enter into his rest. He is, after all, the Lord of Sabbath. And you know, as our lives are shaped by these truths, we see ourselves then living in the light, and then we see ourselves doing more than just saying a few Christian words. We actually are immersed into the kingdom of God and that we're learning the customs and cultures of God's kingdom so that when we speak these words, they have meaning and they are transformative because we've been transformed by an encounter with Jesus. And all of this then rests on one of Mark's favorite words that he uses throughout all 16 chapters, and that is the word authority. The word authority. And what we found over these last 10 months is that Jesus is the one who not only has authority to heal, but taught with such authority that, that they were amazed. Even the unclean spirits obeyed him. And then you have that, that wonderful, assuring note that says, and he has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is the foundation that Mark builds on as he writes his gospel. And as the dark forces gathered around Christians in 60 to 70 AD, as Rome began to unleash a persecution on the Jews that bled over into the church, what these Christians were grappling with, even as they read these words that Mark was writing, was, well, how in the world does Jesus have all authority when this tribulation, unlike any tribulation that's been known to man, is coming upon us? That's what Jesus said. The temple destroyed. The Jews scattered. The church scattered under persecution. How can we say, how can we say with any credibility Jesus has authority today when we live in such spiritually dark times? And the church seems to have very little answer to it. And, and that I actually read someone this last week who believes himself to be a Christian who said, who wrote, he wrote, he didn't just say this so he couldn't be misrepresented, who wrote that when Jesus said that there are eunuchs in the world, that he was actually affirming transgendered lifestyles because he recognized there would be eunuchs. Like, I listen, I've never been good at gymnastics, like relationally, mentally, or actual physical gymnastics. This guy, wow, he can, he's really bending over backwards there. To write blasphemy, taking the words of Jesus to affirm something evil, you see. So how can the church have any credibility in a time of such darkness and confusion? And yet we're, we're here to say this morning, well, you know what? Jesus does have all authority. He has all authority. And even though it may look foolish to follow him, we must take up our cross. We must take up our cross. And a cross of suffering has no room for fleshly responses, whatever those fleshly responses might look like. They must be filled with 
God's Spirit. Judgment, yes, is coming. That's what um, Jude read from Malachi. Thank you, Stephen. Stephen pointed like Jude. Jude read from Malachi. That's why Tyler in, in 2 Corinthians, what, what, what does light have to do with darkness? Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. So it, it takes me then, then to my first point when we say that if we're going to learn the language that Jesus spoke, we're going to be immersed in it, we're going to pull up that curtain and let the light shine in, we've got to understand that the kingdom of God is upon us, the time is fulfilled, as Jesus said. So, so just to remind you, when we talk about the kingdom of God, what we are talking about is the effective range of God's will among us. How far does God's effective range, you know, reach for his will? Uh, now, mine, not very far. Not, my, mine, not very far, right? I have, I have a, a desire, I have a will, but my effective range is limited. I mean, I really, I, I really would like a high-end sports, like a, like a Ferrari. And I really like to be able to, like, blast down the north way like at about 180 miles an hour. I just would like that. But the range of my effective will economically says, oh, you'll never actually have a Ferrari. Unless it's one of those little mini ones that you kind of put up on the shelf, you know. And, and New York's finest might have something to say. <laughs> if I'm like at 80 miles an hour. I don't know even if 80, you might have to go more than that these days, but you know what I'm saying? The range of my effective will is limited, but God's, the range of God's effective will is not limited. This is what it means to be in the kingdom of God. His rule and reign are here through his spirit that indwells the church through the word of God as it is taught. The range of his effective will reaches through our baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember when you entered into the waters of baptism and what you said to the congregation, and what the congregation said to you, and God's will working through that, and when we come to the table of our Lord, and we confess our sins, and we receive the elements of the table, we repent, and we believe the gospel means that I stop looking to do life on my own terms, I do life on God's terms. And the sources that are impacting my life, of the world, and the flesh, and the devil, by God's grace, I shove away, I push away, and I look to live within his will continuously. Not a one-time decision. Not something I did as a kid in BBS or Sunday school, raised my hand, went forward in the service. No. The living reality of God's will in my life at this moment is the proof I need to know that I am indeed a Christian walking in obedience with the Lord. Because you know it's God's work, it's God's kingdom, we can stop trying to substitute ourselves into God's place. Whatever the issue may be, by the way, there's more issues than the darkness spiritually in the world in which we live. It's how we think about money, it's how we think about relationships, it's how we think about work, it's how we think about the church. Stop substituting yourself in God's place as to how you think about those things. Because the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and what? And believe the gospel. The good news 
that is here for you right now. That the range of God's effective will is within your grasp, within your reach, if you will only turn to it. As we've seen, though, over and again in Mark, human failure is still part of the experience. To build a culture of faith, hope, and love means that we have to keep going back to the place where Jesus calls us to go, the place where restoration takes place. We need to go, in terms of what I've explained from Mark, we need to go to Galilee. We need to go to Galilee. Go back to chapter 14, and let's just again mark the steps as we are, are you know, as he lays them out for us. In chapter 14, Jesus leads his disciples from the upper room. They sing a hymn, verse number 26. They go to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus has some really, really difficult news for them. He says, you all will, you all will fall away. And that's difficult, right? That's difficult. They just had this amazing time. Jesus washed their feet. Jesus did all these things. They've received the table and then they go out, they sing a hymn. I mean, it's great, right? Great song. And, and then Jesus says, hey, hang on. You're going to fall away. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you about me. It doesn't take long. Thought, word, and deed. And what I've done and what I've left undone. To fall away. See, that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is what comes next. Jesus said, uh, as it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to where? Where is he going? Galilee. Galilee. I know we were just there last week, so good job on answering that. I hope a month from now you'll remember it as well. And we, and we learn, right, from John's gospel especially, that that's the place of restoration. And we said last week, right, no one should have been at the tomb on, on, on the morning of resurrection. They all should have been in Galilee looking for Jesus, which is what, when you get to chapter 16, right, that's what the angel says to the women. The women have gone there. And he says in verse 6, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See where they laid him, but go... Tell his disciples and Peter, right, that he is going before you. Where is he going? He's going to Galilee. As disciples, we share in this central reality that not only are our sins forgiven, but we are restored in a relationship of peace with God through Jesus Christ. And this core truth has been experienced by all disciples, which is a reflection of our Catholicity, that we are one in Christ because we came into Christ the same way. We are restored to God the same way, not by works of righteousness, which we've done. Isn't that what Todd read earlier? Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. That's, a, that's commonality. That's a, a unified reality of faith. You know, when the angel tells the women to go to Galilee, it's not clear at that moment what that means to them. But nevertheless, they end up going, and there they meet with Jesus. There have been times in my life it wasn't clear 
what it was going to look like after I had to go to Galilee. Circumstances, difficulties, hardships, owning to my own sin, my own brokenness. We don't always know exactly what it looks like. We only know the promise that he will be there waiting for us, restoring us, loving us, caring for us. And in those times of greatest brokenness in my own life, in my own life, what I have found so very often is that Jesus puts other people there too. Other people who forgive. Other people who help mend. Other people who come alongside. You see, discipleship is about meeting Jesus daily in our own Galilee, if you get that, what I, metaphorically what I mean, our souls being restored day by day in confession of sin. Yes, but the thing about going to Galilee is that it is not just only to be privatized. If there was a moment in time, and if I could go back to that moment in time of history, in the United States of America at least, when people said that religion is a private matter, I, I would like to just stop it in time right there and say, don't say that. And Baptists have been the worst culprits of this, by the way. It's a me and God relationship. Me and my Bible relationship. Me and my own personal devotional relationship. Thank you very much. It's me and God. When the whole, the whole of the New Testament says, oh, no, it's not. It's a communal reality. It's a community. The disciples were restored as a community. Through a restored community, the gospel goes out in the book of Acts. Yes, 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 there's personal time with the Lord. Obviously, absolutely, don't neglect it. But the primary thrust of discipleship is not private, but communal. The community of God's people together. Being restored by God together. Yeah, I would say that point alone gives us direction in which we are to go as a congregation. You know, we do fairly well at immersion on Sunday. But you, 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 I mean, you just have to admit, right? I mean, I'm, I don't have to, like, point this out too much. Pretty much, there is a limited amount of immersion in each other's lives after Sunday. And it's really a reflection of the culture. The culture that says, I'm going to drive to work, I'm going to drive home, and I'm pulling my driveway, or if I'm really blessed into my garage, I'm going to walk inside, I'm going to pull the curtain down, and I'm going to find stuff to do. It's a reflection of our culture. And it's hard then to convince people the importance of being immersed in loving relationships for the sake of learning the language of our God and new creation of faith, hope, and love together. Because in relationship with the, it gets tricky. Which is why, right, James says love covers a multitude of what? He doesn't say love covers a multitude of good works. Right? <laughs> no, it covers a multitude of sins. You know, for several months this year, I sat with Dan Van Wee and Dave Ersine in a Bible study each week out of the Gospel of Mark. 
We learned about Mark, but we learned about each other and one another's faith and how to encourage one another. Wednesday morning, starting back in March, and it'll end here in, in a few weeks, we do it seasonally down at St. James. Every, almost every Wednesday morning, I've been in a prayer meeting down there with eight or ten people getting immersed in each other's lives. Almost every Tuesday, Brian and I meet. We talk about Sunday school, and we talk about theology, and, and, then, and then we also talk about football, you know? And we learn about each other, and we're immersed in each other's lives. Eric and Jude and I have just started a study, meeting every other week or so, getting immersed in each other's lives. This isn't a self-promotional video, don't get me wrong. It's an appeal to you to be engaged in each other's lives. Because the Christian faith is not a private matter. Because if we're going to learn the language of faith, hope, and love, the signs of new creation that grow all around us, we need to learn, the, learn them together. I think it's a question that we have to consider um, as we think about bringing the gospel into these communities that prayer that I've been praying, maybe a few of you have been praying, do it again, Lord, do it again. You know, make these communities substantially Christian again. You know, a good question would be, what would be the effect on our lives together if we somehow rearranged our lives and went against this culture of privatization and that we as a church became communal once again in our practices outside of Sunday? What would be the effect, I wonder, on the community around us? What impact might that have on the 3,000 souls, most of whom are still lying in the depths of darkness in the village of Fort Edward in this little hamlet we live in? Now, I, I want to be clear. I, I have no program. I have no promotional campaign. I, I am not looking to put any guilt or make anybody feel bad. That's not the point. The point, though, is to examine this is what God's word says. This is how the culture is acting. And this is how we should then respond to the culture in which we live if we're going to be faithful to the word of God. If we want to subvert the present powers then let us act in accordance with the Lord whose kingdom is present among us. Have you thought about going to Galilee with your idea of a private religion, private Christian practices, your one-on-one -on -one with God? Have you thought about going to Galilee and asking Jesus, oh, by the way, Jesus, is that okay? That 95% of my time I spend practicing Christianity by myself and not so much with your people? Well, the implications there, by the way, are staggering. I don't know how I would do it. That's why I'm not suggesting a program. I, I, I'm getting to be one of those people. You know, 7 o'clock at night, not so much interested in moving on out. Charlene, <laughs> Charlene's looking at me like, yeah, yeah, you're getting old, pastor. Those 6.30 meetings, you know, like, oh, man. 
the implications are staggering of what it would take for the church to actually get on the same page with Jesus. But are we just going to speak words? And, and by the way, and this isn't in the sermon notes, some of you are going, what's going on? He doesn't have that written down. Um, I really think, I really think that the weight of this is starting, it's already starting to be carried by this wonderful, this, this wonderful group of 18 to 20-something-year-olds that God's placed under our care as a church. I'm seeing, I'm seeing that starting to really grow, and man, that, that excites me. Because it's not that we old, older people don't have a role here. I'm not saying that. Don't, don't check off, you know, I'm out. I'm not, no, that's not the point. But oh, how we need to encourage and support them. And I, and I do have great, great hope for the future in that. But my hope isn't in them. My hope's in Jesus, which takes us to the end then, to Mark 2. To Mark 2. Two or three different ways I thought about ending this sermon and this series. And I was actually reading in my own uh, Bible reading this week the, the, the Sabbath rules and the idea of Sabbath. And I was reminded in Mark 2, Jesus says something. You know, whenever Jesus says he's Lord over something, you know, we ought to pay attention to that. Now, I know he's Lord over everything. But he's Lord over Sabbath. He's Lord over rest. He's not Lord over inactivity. That's not Sabbath. He's Lord over rest. Our future is not a future of conflict. Our future is not one of uncertainty. Our future is not one of unresolved issues. All issues have been resolved. Certainty, rest with God. Conflict will end because God will end it. Our future is with Jesus, who is the Lord of Sabbath rest. That means it is a future of rest, and it means that our rest begins as it should have begun when we came to him as Savior, and that it continues to be so. If you want to know about Sabbath rest and its implications, read Hebrews 4, and I think one of, one of the great oddities of Hebrews 4 is it says, strive to enter into that rest. Have you ever had a sleepless night and said to yourself, I'm going to force myself to go to sleep, and then all you do is lie awake thinking about how you're not sleeping? How in the world do we strive to enter into that rest? Some of you are unintentional nappers. Nick Miller and I were in a meeting one time in my living room. We were talking. I woke up. <laughs> Nick is sleeping, and I'm sleeping. I, threw a, I think I threw a pillow at him. At certain times of day, right, if we sit still long enough, we find ourselves asleep. That's unintentional napping. But what it means to enter into the rest of Jesus, who is Lord of Sabbath, will take intentionality. To enter into the rest that Christ offers means we must be intentional. And I think this is how Mark helps us as a discipleship manual. 
He keeps bringing us back to the reality of repent, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. If I'm going to rest in the Lord of Sabbath, it must be by faith that his kingdom is present among us and that I can trust him with it. As the wonderful theologian writer who's now with the Lord, Dallas Willard, has said, and I say often at the 12 at 12 prayer times, we are always safe in the kingdom of God, which is why we can rest. We are always safe in his kingdom. And this is why the future is Jesus Christ and why I thought it was a good idea to make Mark our central focus for this year. As I have benefited from it, I pray that you have benefited from it and that you will continue to as you remember what Jesus said, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Father, I give you thanks um, for the year we've spent together, how, how good it's been. Um, let, let this little, little wrap up um, just let it affect us and uh, help us. For we are in times of great struggle, in times of great trial. And so I pray that we might then rest in the one who is the Lord of Sabbath. Well, I would encourage you to stay in prayer and further preparing your heart for our time together around the Lord's table. Let's be quiet before him. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.